They say that command is lonely. They say that the path of leadership is fraught with peril. The leaders of tomorrow must be cut of a different mold. They must embrace servant leadership. They must also embrace technological change as it moves at the speed of light. I can think of no better person to discuss these topics than with Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister, Heng Swee Keat. This is a bonus episode of the Science of Work podcast. And this episode, The DNA of Tomorrow's Leaders with Deputy Prime Minister Heng Swee Keat was adapted from a fireside chat I had with him in May at the Ecosystem Asia Summit for Leaders in STEM. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed moderating the fireside chat. Deputy Prime Minister Heng Swee Keat, welcome to the Ecosystem Asia Summit for Leadership in STEM. I want to start 12 years ago, when I first uh, was introduced to you for, by Chairman Philip Yeo. Uh-huh. So thank you for meeting with me. You were then a newly appointed Minister of Education. I was a research scientist at ASTAR. And we were in this very small group session. I don't know if you remember this, but you told us a very powerful story. Uh-huh. It's about building a building, and it takes you know, years to build a foundation up. I'm, I'm not going to tell the full story. And it can take, you know, in a day, somebody can try to destroy it. Um, you are someone who is in the public eye a lot, and you build things. How do you deal with people around you who may not have such great intentions or may not support you? How do you stay focused on your North Star? I'll, I'll say that, uh, well, first, we've got to be very clear about why we are doing something. What is the purpose? You know, what are we hoping to, to achieve? And I would say that there will probably be a mix of uh, reasons. It could be our competitive nature that we just want to win. It could be that uh, we have encountered something in our life which says, well, I need to find a solution to this. I, I met some scientists who were looking into things like stem cell, uh, cancer research, and so on. And they said, well, oh, that's because I, I lost a relative, you know. Mm-hmm. And I felt so bad, I didn't want to be able to find a cure, or find a solution. So I would say having the right, uh, having that sense of purpose is very important in what we do. And being together with people who share that passion for finding that solution is important. Because it's going to be very hard work. You can do all your research, you can do all your lab work, and for days and days and, and months and months and years, maybe nothing comes up. But I think having people who share the same passion, who say, well, let's try, you know, let's keep trying, that perseverance is going to be quite critical. Just as it takes years to build anything, it will take you years to build your career, to make your big finding, and uh, there's something along the way will go wrong. So during COVID, we, I, I spoke to many business leaders and I said, well, you know, this COVID storm is like you're climbing a mountain and somewhere, a huge storm came. And uh, you have two choices, right? Either you, you abandon and you run back to base, or you find a shelter. But if you find a shelter, don't just sleep in the shelter. You know? Go into the shelter and strengthen yourself. Build up your muscles so when the storm uh, recedes, you can then uh, go run off faster and make up for lost time. So I'm, I'm very glad that uh, many of our companies did that. They used that downtime to train their workers and uh, the government supported them with the job support scheme. Mm. So when the storm receded, uh, they were able to bounce back quickly. So there will be setbacks, no doubt about it, but how, we, how do we come out of a setback stronger 
should guide us in what we do, as long as you don't lose that focus. Very wise words, DPM. You know, on this note, I want to say that we are big kids. You know, we, <laughs> we, we, we know that the path to leadership, the leadership journey is fraught with peril. Uh -huh. And I like to say we have to manage up. Haven't you heard that? Manage down. <laughs> manage left, manage right. In my company, I like to say manage Tong Dan Si Manage North, South, East, West. We feel like a ninja at work. <laughs> Do you agree, DPM? <laughs> Maybe you have to manage other countries. Do you know I mean, as a, as a diplomat, Deputy Prime Minister, what would you say to the 20 to 30 year old Heng Sui Kiat? What advice would you give him, perhaps? Am I not 20, 30 years old? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel I that way. You know, DPM, <laughs> I just said I feel 21, even though I'm 40 this year. Uh -huh. I still feel so. young inside. Yeah. I refuse to admit. You look young. Oh, so thank, you. Right. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so to your question about, you know, in any leadership position, you have to manage up, down, left, right, and all, all over. I, I think that is, that is true. But I suppose it goes back to my first point, which is if we want to be a leader, the question is, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of being a leader? Uh, I have I've ran sort of uh, HR's system in the police. I've ran HR. Uh, I've been a member of our public service uh, board where we pick officers for future promotions and so on. And it carries with it certain responsibility. We always look out for this. But the key question that we always ask is, what is this where can this person best contribute? In, uh, uh, for example, when I was running the Ministry of Education, we found that uh, in the earlier years, before we changed the system, the only path to get out is to be a school principal. Right? If you're a good teacher, you're a good teacher, period, and then you end up as, as just a, as a teacher. But that's really wrong because I think People can grow in different ways. They can grow to be, a very, to be a great teacher. So I'm very glad that MOE changed the system. We now have you know, a, beginning, a beginner teacher, and then it goes into uh, different grades until you get reach a master teacher, where you are like a black belt, and you, you are the best teacher. You become a role model, and we take those teachers out to uh, our training academy, and they give lecture on what it takes to be a good teacher. We have good teachers who go into the classrooms and observe other teachers and say, well, how, how could you improve? So there are many different ways in which each of us can contribute. So if I'm in a teaching service, I can aspire to be a master teacher, to be the best I can be as a teacher. If I'm in, uh, some of us may become principals. But to be a principal, you then have to say, well, look, it's now a different job because I'm not, you're not going to be able to spend time in the classroom anymore. And in fact, many school principals who are also great teachers often lament that they can't be, they, they can't teach anymore. It's such a pity. But there is great value in a principal being able to bring the whole school together, being able to bring all the teachers together, being able to inspire students, you know, and inspire teachers, inspire students, being able to work with parents. Uh, because everyone has the same goal, right? I want the best for the child. But if the best is defined narrowly as you know, one yardstick of success, then many 
many children will fail. But if we broaden our definition of success, we will broaden our definition of what it means, then I think we can achieve a lot more as a, as, as a team, as a school, as a society. So back to your question about, therefore, the difficulty of managing you know, left, right, centre. Um, it, it is the nature of management job. And we again must ask ourselves, why is a team better than working alone? And I would say that uh, when I was younger, and you asked me you know, when I was in my, in my 20s and 30s, I, I was thrust into a leadership position very, very early on because when I, I started my career in the police force, and uh, I was in the police force for 15 years, for those of you who may not know. And during that 15 years, the first few years, you know, I was a fresh graduate, I came in with a very high rank, and I found that the police constable on the ground who has been on, on the job for years actually knew so much more about policing than I do as a fresh grad. I may have a degree, but so what, you know, when it comes to street sense and how you manage. One of my most uh, scary incidents was that I was in a police car and then a radio call came and said, there's a traffic light breakdown. Uh, and then my car was uh, assigned to deal with it. And suddenly you were standing in the middle of the traffic <laughs> junction directing traffic. And after a while, I, you know, I had no idea. I didn't even have a driving license. <laughs> and after a while, after stopping traffic left, right, people started haunting me because I didn't realize that I had stopped traffic on one direction for so long. And people get really irritated. So my, my partner, uh, who was a constable, said, Sir, let me take over. And he did an excellent job. So I think the moral of the story is that, I, I mean, for me, it's a great learning experience that if you're running an organization, it is important for us to understand the front line. Mm -hmm. What is it that people right at the front line are doing and how you as a leader can support them. In fact, one of our best hoteliers in Singapore, who owns the hotel, told me that uh, at the very, in the very early part of his career, he made it a point to do the receptionist job, to receive guests. Because he said he did realize that he had no idea of his guest profile. He had no idea of what his guests wanted. So he decided, yes, I may be the owner, but I should be humble. I should go to the front line. I should learn what my colleagues will have to do day in, day out, and how do guests react to certain things, and what should I tell them, and so on. And he told me that even years after that, when he had experience, he would occasionally go down just to keep himself updated on this. So I would say that I have a very strong bias about understanding what is happening in the front line if you want to get the best of the organization. Things don't happen just because you, know, you said so as, as a leader. And which is why uh, when I was education minister, my favorite word is that education doesn't take place in the minister's office. Education takes place in a moment-to-moment -moment interaction between the teacher and the student, whether it's in a school, in a, in a field, or in another setting. Education takes place in a moment-to-moment -moment interaction between the parents and the child. And we must enable the parents to help the child learn. But if we think that it takes place in my office, and I have a great policy, things will work, then you know, I'm completely... I will be completely wrong and I would fail in what I have to do. So I think understanding the whole process end to end about 
who really matters in that process as a leader is important. But our job is to be able to bring everyone together, that let's work together as a team. Uh, one of the best books uh, on management that I've read is actually by Peter Drucker. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. And, and Drucker, Drucker has this uh, point that you know, a good organization makes strengths, makes weaknesses irrelevant and strengths productive. It makes weaknesses irrelevant and strengths productive. It is a very good recognition that very few of us have everything. That you know, we, we, we are totally ambidextrous, we can do everything. And therefore, a big part of what we, we have to do as leaders is to understand our own strengths and weaknesses, understand the strengths and weaknesses of our colleagues, and look for ways in which we can complement one another. And in that way, I think you can, you can look at how uh, we can best you know, work together, brainstorm, and so on. You know, DPM, I really love all the stories that you were telling us because they are, to me, the epitome of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. So you're out there on the front lines listening. Um, you also talked about self-awareness, mm -hmm. knowing where our strengths are and our weaknesses are, and finding ways to you know, complement those weaknesses, right. and recognizing that we aren't perfect Indeed. in positions of leadership. Indeed. We, yeah. I want to move on to another topic that is, uh, a, a, you know, I think about a lot, and this is a topic of failure. And let me explain what I'm talking about, failure at a leadership summit. Because, you know, for scientists in academia and everywhere else, really, every day is basically failure after failure after failure. You know, um, in your case, would you be able to share with us a story or two about failure? And, and believe me, you know, I'm not interested in the politics of it. I mean, we are scientists for a reason. Um, I think we are interested more in the humanity of it, you know, uh -huh. how you felt... Did you wallow in it and how you came out of it and how you bounced back from failure? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been a bureaucrat my whole life. I have, uh, so I, be, I have to say that I've never been, a, I've never done research on my own, never been trying to do this great scientific work. Neither have I ran a business and the business failed. <laughs> in fact, I've not even earned a single dollar from any business <laughs> because I've not started any business. I, but uh, the, and, and I've been very fortunate to have very good colleagues uh, all the way, and they have helped me avoid some of the problems. Uh, the, I would say there was once when I was running the Trade Development Board, I was the CEO of the Trade Development Board, and the board has a, a, a duty of helping Singapore exporters export their products better. So one day, uh, I had there was a submission to me that a group, uh, well, a, a group of uh, Singapore food retailers wanted to mount an exhibition in Europe to sell their food. So then I had about seven or eight forms, each one asking for a, a sum of money because we said, well, if you do an exhibition, we'll provide some support for you to do the exhibition. Then I look at them and I say, oh, they're going to the same place? They said, yes. And they're going to the same exhibition. I said, why don't you uh, talk to them about doing Singapore food? And you, we provide a bigger grant, take a bigger stand, then they can stand out. So they said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, Mr. Hinga, we will do it. So they went. And then a week passed, nothing came back. 
Another week passed, nothing came back. So I remember that there was such a request. So I, one day I bumped into the officer. I said, what, what happened? You know, have they agreed? So my, uh, my colleague said, Mr. Heng, I hope you don't mind uh, if I tell you the real reason. I said, sure, please tell me. They think you are a silly bureaucrat. That's I said, what? They think I'm a silly bureaucrat? Said, yeah, you are thinking like a bureaucrat, you know, that you, you by consolidating, there will be economies of scale, there will be... They said, you, you didn't understand that they are all competitors. <laughs> How can I go and exhibit the food together with my competitor? I, I must say, I, 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 I didn't... And I, it didn't occur to me that they would even think that way. And uh, so I, I said, well, uh, I, I, I think so, so be it. You know, so I ended up signing every form and each one of them doing that. So it, it was something that left a very deep impression because we assume that the, a certain course of action will be right, but then it, it may not be the right time, it may not be the right group, and they decided... So many, many years later, I was very happy to find out that, that on Timor, we now have Singapore food because they gathered together to do that. You know, that they will brand the Singapore food together because there is value in doing that. And in fact, uh, the, I was also very cheered a few, uh, about two years back, I visited the Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce and Industry. They had taken up a space at Jurong, the old JTC building, to run this trade association and chambers hub. Mm -hmm. So we have a very strict set of uh, competition law to ensure there's no uh, anti-competitive practices and collusion. But on the other hand, it has always been my view that industries working in the same area really should cooperate to solve common problems, even as they compete to differentiate themselves. So in the same way that I always felt too that even as countries compete among ourselves to be a to be better in this, to be better economically, and so on. <clears throat> there are many common challenges that people should come together to solve. Mm -hmm. The pandemic is one great example, uh, the very, very vivid example. The climate change is another example. But it is sad to see that the quality of global cooperation mm -hmm. is not there. So I hope that my, my dream is that in the same way that uh, just as we get this food uh, retailers to come together. The event, they didn't think that it was a, such a great idea, uh, but eventually they said, well, I think there is value in working together. So it is it's not easy, but it was, it was a little humbling for me, but I learned that sometimes you may have the right solution, but at the wrong time, and that you just have to find the right people to, to do that. So I make it a point after that, that when I meet businesses, I ask, if we try this, what are the pros and cons? And there I get a more honest answer because the ones who didn't like the idea will have a lot more cons. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, DPM, sometimes as leaders, we have good intentions when we make certain decisions or ideas. And of course, the outcomes are not really what we predicted, right? In your Very case. often. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you know we don't we don't have all the answers, and it's always good to to get feedback. I think this is a good point, uh, DPM, to second to the topic of R and D. You know, I think Asia has been punching above its weight in R and D, and I could be a bit biased. I do run a magazine called Asian Scientist, so you know. <laughs> no, no, you're not biased. You're more knowledgeable than us. <laughs> and, and and suddenly Singapore is punching above its weight. You know, as the chairman of the National Research Foundation Board NRF. You have a bird's eye view of everything going on here. Mm -hmm. How have we done so far? And uh, importantly, how have we contributed during the three-year pandemic uh, in the COVID global fight? Well, I, I would say that uh, we have made really very good progress over the years. And I, I would say that a lot of credit must go to Mr. Philip Yo, mm -hmm. who was uh, chairman EVB and later on uh, chairman of ASTAR. Yes. And uh, I was the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Trade Industry, and uh, Philip was then chairman of uh, ASTAR. And Philip was a very, very uh, strong believer in the future of particularly life sciences, but also more generally the whole engineering, because EDB had always had a strong orientation on engineering. But um, Philip did something which one of his great uh, insights and achievements was that he believed in bringing in the best people to do R&D, to do science. And he had a, a sort of a two-pronged strategy. At that time, our team of R&D talents is, is quite small. So Philip, one day he came to me cheekily and said, you know, you have given us a research funding. I've stolen some of it. I said, what? I say, tell me, better confess. You know, I was a former policeman. I say, Philip, better confess. <laughs> he said, I, I have created an A-star scholarship. You know, because it's not just about spending money in the lab, right? Not just about building fiscal infrastructure. At the end of the day, it's about people, people, people. It's about talent, talent, talent. And I want to attract some of our best students to do science and tech. And uh, that was how he started. And we now have thousands of uh, A-star scholars, Juliana being one of them. And I'm very glad that uh, you, know, you have forged your own uh, path forward. So I would say that uh, we have made progress largely because of two things that Philip did. One is this development of our local talent. And B, the, our attitude of welcoming the best scientists wherever you are from to be in Singapore. So if you look at uh, our universities, our research labs, we have very, very strong uh, team from all over the world working together with us. I think that that is a plus. As uh, Aaron Chachovova, who was Chachonhova, who was here, Nobel laureate, during the Global Young Scientist Summit said, you know, science is global. And I hope that uh, we can bring people around the world together to pursue a common purpose of advancing science, advancing technology and innovation. So if we can do that, uh, that will be a big plus, not just for Singapore, but for humanity. And many of these common challenges, we should be open to doing that. So on what Singapore can do, I hope that you know, we can uh, work together with everyone around the world to uh, build up this understanding. I was in Silicon Valley uh, two weeks back, you know, speaking to a lot of uh, 
scientists at Stanford, Berkeley, and uh, University of San Francisco on how what are the areas that they are focusing on and what are the things that we can do together. Uh, I was in Japan a few weeks uh, back uh, on the same uh, on the same mission, and I, I must say that I'm glad that what you said about Singapore being well regarded is uh, really quite a plus. And uh, we should try and find more ways in which we work together. Just two days back, I was with the Secretary of the Hong Kong, uh, he was in charge of technology and innovation, and he was in Singapore to look at what we were doing. And I said, well, we're happy to work together. Particularly, both Hong Kong and Singapore are islands, and climate change is something that will threaten both our existence. So I say we should have a joint effort to work on some of this area. So if we work hard enough, we should be able to find enough interesting themes where we can uh, work together. Dipyeong, mm. I want to talk about, and I want to move on to another topic that is very close to my heart. Uh -huh. And that's the topic of women in STEM. Okay, just to, just to caveat, I don't think this is a Singapore problem. I think it's a global problem. And the problem here I'm going to describe is that our career building years also intersect with our family building years. Right. The times where we, you know, we're pregnant, we are having kids, we are raising kids. And by the way, I am also speaking about dads too. You know, dads also play a very big part. Mm -hmm. But do you have any, you know, thoughts on how we can increase the percentage of women in STEM, and more importantly, the percentage of women in leadership in STEM? Yeah. Well, uh, no pressure. <laughs> Earlier when I came in, I asked Juliana, I said, are there any men in the room? <laughs> and she said, yeah, there are, there are 10 brave men in the room. <laughs> but I scattered them all over so that... <laughs> so maybe this is a question for all the men. But first, the, the very fact that you have men in the room is, is a big plus. I, I thought I was going to be the only one. <laughs> yeah. So my wife asked me where I, where I was going. I said, I'm going to this women in STEM thing. She said, good luck to you. <laughs> You're very brave. You're very brave to join. Let's give him a round of applause, please. Come on. Yeah. Yes. Difficult question. So, so first, I, I I'll say that uh, in, in terms of uh, gender equality and the participation of women in our society, I, I hold a very strong belief that we should, uh, uh, you know, we should strive for equality. And uh, we should allow everyone to contribute, regardless of their gender, their race, their language, their religion. Because I think we're all human beings. And I think we should make the best use of this human potential that we have in all of us to make the best contribution. And not to stereotype people by how they look or you know, what, uh, what is their gender and so on. So it's something which we should strive throughout, not just in, in STEM area, but throughout our society. And I think a lot starts from how we bring up our children and the sort of attitudes that we form. I think typically when you, someone says, you know, I've given birth to a, a baby girl or baby boy, they say, well, if it's a girl, I'll go and buy a doll. If it's a boy, I'll go and buy a, a train or something. Mm. So I think some of this stereotyping uh, starts very early mm. and we should be careful uh, not to do that. Now, so changing societal attitude is actually very difficult. I once spoke to uh, a researcher who was doing this uh, PISA test, as well as the, there's another test that they did called the PIAP. 
I think it's PIAAC, which is studying adult skills acquisition and skills utilization. And he found that uh, in some Asian societies, when it came to skills acquisition as measured by their academic results, school results, and so on, it, it surpasses that in America. But when it came to skills utilization, whether what was in the head was used in life on the job, America trumped the, this uh, uh, particular Asian society. And he was very, very puzzled. So even though his work was just to measure this, he found that employment practices, uh, the role that we assign to women in some of our Asian society, uh, basically confine them to certain roles for which it will be very hard for them to really make a breakthrough. So, I, so he said, oh, what a terrible waste. And I said, yeah, what a terrible waste. And that, uh, that I think we can learn something from the U.S. about how they deal with these this issues and how the companies themselves can be stronger companies if they know how to use their talents better. So I'll say there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And in the area of STEM, one particular issue is that the, again, doing science, doing construction, doing engineering type, is often seen as not ladylike. And again, there's a lot of stereotype that we should uh, overcome and uh, avoid making that kind of broad, general statement and assign roles to that. And for the men in the room, I think we can all do our part, right, to do a little better, to see how we can support uh, women and make sure that we ourselves don't become the, the, the source of the problem. One good lesson from COVID is that if you can work from home, you can work from anywhere, and why can't we be more flexible? And I've seen many of our staff, if you have a little kid or even a, a, a parents to look after, sometimes that flexibility is very important. So I think there's a lot of work that we can do to make this work a lot easier. And in particular, in the STEM area, not to stereotype and say, well, only girls will do this, only boys will do this. I think that's very, very bad. If you look at the achievements, by the way, in Singapore, when I was education minister, I look at the achievements of our students by gender, you know, girls and boys. And uh, I think the ladies in this room will be happy to know that actually in Singapore, the girls have always beaten the boys in aggregate. <laughs> whether, it's in PS, whether it's in PSLE or O-level or, or university entrance. So uh, if I use that as a proxy for a measure of potential, there is a lot of potential in the room. So please advocate. And I know that you have some members you know, here who are you know, advocating like mums at work and uh, various... Uh, Our first trainer thrive. for today, Shirley Tori, she's... Uh, uh, she runs Moms at Work and she helps bring moms on career breaks right. back into the workforce. Right. Working with companies like LinkedIn and so on. Oh, that's good. And then you have Thrive. I saw someone from Thrive. Yeah. And, and of course, for those of us who are husbands, uh, we need to play our part. Yeah. I, I'm proud that when my uh, first child was born, I was able to take four weeks off to spend time with my... That, that, was, a, that was not... Uh, you know, part of the package in those days? Uh, no, it was... It was uh, I was... 
I was still a policeman and I had uh, five weeks of leave. So I spoke to my deputy, I said, would you deputize for me while I enjoy my fatherhood? And he said, of course. <laughs> I said, well, my number is always there. If there's anything, call me. Yeah, but I enjoyed the time with my little girl. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, DP, I want to make a point on that because uh, you, it's a very good example that you've said. You should speak about this more because now that even though they have paternal leave in some countries, uh-huh. they don't take they don't the take leave. them. The, yes. the dads don't want to. I think they've it's seen as a practice. I will encourage not, all dads to do not that. Not popular. Yeah, I will encourage all dads to do that. It, it's a very magical moment to, you know, to see your child. Well done, you. There. <laughs> yes, yes, claps. You know, DPM, I want to talk about um, the time when I, I left academia. This uh-huh. is 2018. I want to talk about uh, making career transitions, quitting, you know, in my case. And I was very disappointed in myself. I, I felt very, uh, I felt like I lost everything. I felt like the rug was pulled out from under me when I wanted to be a science communicator. And I wrote you an email. Uh-huh. And I was feeling very sad when I wrote that email. And you wrote a very, very sweet, encouraging email back. I still have it, oh. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to use this moment to thank you for that. And also just to really acknowledge the support of our male colleagues, our male allies mm-hmm. around us. You know, sometimes we make it about, you know, us versus them. Right. And I don't think that's fair because I think there are many, many angels around us trying to help us, you know, and pull us up. So maybe you have some thoughts about how male colleagues... Uh, can view this very complex situation, you know, trying to help, but sometimes feeling like, hey, I'm not the problem, but why are you, you know, upset at me? So how, do, how, do, how, how can we unpack this? It's a bit complex. You've got a few minutes. <laughs> uh, while, while I'm thinking for the few minutes, I have, I'm told there are 10 men here, right? About 10 would, men, yes. About 10 men. Would, would anyone like to help me up? <laughs> Since you all have a brave enough to keep me company. Yeah. That's a smart yeah. move, DPM. Yeah. Hi, Alexander uh, Alsevier. Yeah. I'm a man because I'm here because I believe that uh, <laughs> we all play an important role. We're all part of the same process. Yes. And we can't leave it to every uh, minority, every uh, person who's a member of a group that has uh, specific uh, challenges. We can't leave it just up to other people to sort out and create uh, an environment that's fair, equitable, and to create the kind of ideal society that I think a lot of us in our minds and hearts can, can see is possible. Um, if we're not active ourselves, it's not gonna happen by itself. So I thought I'd come just to show support, but also to learn and to listen. I think there's a lot of content and a lot of speakers here today that I'll personally learn from myself so I'll understand what I could do better to support it. So. That's just my thoughts on it. Well done, you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us and encouraging us. Such, such sweet words. So thank you very much, uh, Alexander, for, uh, for chipping in. Uh, I, I would say that in terms of workplace uh, practices, it is important for us to observe, uh, to, to make a deliberate effort, and first and foremost, to observe basic norms. Right? I think the, the, the actions on, for example, sexual harassment and all that, is uh, is something that we have to speak out against, mm. and uh, so I think there's a there's a plus. But at the same time, in terms of the development of people, I've been involved in the public service evaluation of uh, officers 
you know, for many, many years when I was a permanent secretary. And I'm very glad that, you know, my colleagues have always been in the public service, the permanent secretaries of the senior rank who evaluate uh, officers for promotion to become future permanent secretaries, have always been very, very uh, objective about what the contributions and the potential of every one of our officers is. And uh, in fact, uh, since I entered politics, the two permanent secretaries I work with who have been most effective are both ladies. Yes. Yeah. One, yeah, one is Ying Yi, who was my permanent secretary, both in the Ministry of Education and when I moved over to the Ministry of Finance. And she was a pillar of strength in bringing the whole Ministry of Finance together, particularly during COVID, yes. where in one year I had, we had to do five budgets. And without her, her ability to rally everyone together, it was, uh, would have been very tough. And the other, of course, is uh, Ms. Chan Lai Fang. Lai Fang again was working with me in the Ministry of Education. And she's now working with me in the National Research Foundation. So when, when I asked her to take up the job, she said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I said, well, but you are a, a superb administrator and you will be able to bring people together, exercise that leadership uh, role. And in fact, she's, she's very effective at bringing people together. So again, it goes back to my point about you know, knowing our strength and knowing how to use our strength and knowing how to use people's uh, strength. And I would say that when it comes to managing some of this very difficult situation, uh, I, I will give the top marks to the ladies who have worked with me because Sometimes it's a very, very difficult situation. A quarrels with B, B quarrels with C, and all that. And the ability to bring people together uh, determines whether we succeed or not. Yeah. Thank you for being a male ally, EPM. <laughs> I'll be very happy to see, as you said, uh, one of you, but hopefully even more than one. You know, yeah, doing we want something to have 100 really shots at the goal. Yeah. yeah. So one out of 100 is. Only 1%. Jelena, you got up the ratio. Come on, we can do this. Together we can, for sure. Lipin, we have only time for one last question and I want to keep it because it's a big one. This is about the economy. And I know this. we are not economists in the room. You are. Uh, we are scientists. But I think it's worth discussing. Uh, I'm sure you know we are in quite complex situations. Uh, need I mention inflation, increasing property prices, big tech layoffs. And most recently, you know, the AI is going to take away our jobs. <laughs> you know, I put it in carrots, open carrots, because I don't think so. I think they're going to create more jobs. Um, how do we, you know, think of this? Are there any silver linings in this environment? And more importantly, how can we embrace this change confidently? Well, I, th I think you asked a very uh, complicated question, complex question. Mm. You'll take us uh, the whole day to discuss this. Mm. But I would say that uh, we... First, in terms of the changes that we are seeing, uh, economies always go through cycles. Right? Mm. There is always the business cycle, it goes up and down, and uh, our ability to, uh, to, to be able to ride the cycle is very important for any business. There's a few significant trend lines which we will have to address. In particular, digitalization and AI. It's a whole new field that's opening up. And that opens up also issues on trust, trust technology and cybersecurity. Because is it what you see, is it the real thing or is it a fake? 
and I think we will have to address that very carefully. Again, huge potential, but also significant risk. Then, of course, you have the other slow-moving but major uh, change that's coming, which is climate change. So uh, a little island like Singapore will be completely flooded over. So it is an existential issue for Singapore, and we should do a lot more work on that. But I think the hardest thing that even today in Singapore that we had to do is to make the structural changes. And for example, uh, we have been working on this industry transformation map for seven, eight years now, but bringing the agencies together to support industry and companies to say, what are the changes that you need to make? Uh, I am continuing to work on how we can uh, work on improving the leadership in our companies to be able to chart new paths, to be able to take care of, as you said, to be able to manage up, down, left, right, center, right? But I think to be able to bring people together for a common purpose is critical. And being able to define what is that common purpose? What is it that we're going to do? Is my company here to make money? Is my company here to do something beyond making money and so on? Whatever may be your objective is fine. But I think that clarity is important. And we think with that clarity, you can bring the right people on board, energize them, and work in a, towards that goal. I think we should think about how we can harness technology uh, for the better, for the, for, the, for the betterment of mankind, or, or humankind, since there are so many ladies here. <laughs> so for the betterment of, 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 uh, of the planet as well, because I think we cannot take the, the planet Earth for granted. And I think our work on sustainability uh, on energy efficiency, on the energy transition will be a major piece of work. Our work on how we keep uh, people healthy for longer you know, and productive, lead more fulfilling life will be very important for our work because all developed countries are facing an aging population. So how do we turn that challenge into an opportunity for something good? And uh, how do we harness the new digital technology for the world to work together on many of these issues. And many of these are cross-cutting. One reason why we have a smart nation effort is that as a, as a small country as, where the systems are fairly well integrated today, can we make a difference by working together on many of these issues? Thank you, DPM, for giving us so much inspiration with the, what you see of the future, but more importantly, also mentioning climate change <laughs> and sustainability. You know, from women empowerment to male allies and, of course, uh, artificial intelligence as well. You've given us a lot of food for thought and you've touched the lives of many people today. So once again, I would like everyone to please give DPM a round of applause for joining us Thank this you. morning. Thank you. Thank you very Thank you. much. As we wrap up the first season of The Science of Work with Juliana Chan, I would like to take a moment to express my gratitude and thanks to all of you for being part of this journey with me. First, I would like to thank all our listeners of this podcast for giving me and my guests your support, your encouragement, and your feedback. Next, I want to thank my seven speakers and bonus eighth speaker for so generously giving me your insights, your stories, and advice. Thank you for saying yes to me when I didn't have a podcast to begin with, and now we all have this to share together. 
Last but not least, I would like to thank my podcast producers at Zirap Media. I'd like to thank Joel. I would like to thank Clamus and Afika for making me feel so comfortable and making me look so professional on camera. I have some very good news for you. We'll be back for a second season of the Science of Work podcast and I'm looking forward to it, to filming it, to talking, finding new guests and new topics. Now, please stay in touch with me on LinkedIn, on Instagram and TikTok at Juliana Chan PhD to get updates for the next season. And that's all for now. I'm Juliana Chan. See you next season. <music>